good evening. It's a great pleasure to be back here. This is the last uh, event on a four-week teaching tour in California. And tomorrow we fly home. I'm going to talk this evening about uh, Shanti Deva and his 8th century work, uh, the Bodhicari Avatara, which I've translated as a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Uh, this is uh, at Gill's suggestion and a subject that is very close to my heart since it is um, a translation, uh, a text that I translated now nearly uh, 30 years ago. Um, I was living in Dharamsala in India and was a monk. And under the... Um, uh, the aegis of the Dalai Lama, a group of us uh, offered to study and then make a translation of this work into English from the Tibetan. And that project then took up much of the following years, and this translation was eventually published in 1979. What I'd like to do this evening is to introduce you to this text and also to introduce you as best one can to the somewhat enigmatic figure of Shantideva himself. Very little is known about Shantideva. Arguably, nothing is known about Shantideva. <laughs> um, all we have, really, are um, some fragments of legend and what we know most about him, though, I feel, comes through the verses of the text itself. First, the fragments of legend. At least this is how he's remembered in the, in the Tibetan traditions. Shantideva would have lived probably around the 7th or 8th centuries of our era, uh, probably in northern India. He's reputed to have been a monk, at uh, Nalanda, which if any of you have been to the Buddhist pilgrimage places in India, is uh, just next door to Rajgir. It's a place where the Buddha himself taught and became, um, in the early part of the common era, the site of um, probably the greatest Buddhist monastic university that's ever existed. So it was a very prestigious place. People, monks came not only from India but as far afield as China uh, to study there. But Shantideva was not your average monk. He was reputed to have been um, what was rather disparagingly called a practitioner of the three activities which were sleeping, eating and shitting. <laughs> <laughs> and in order to as it were, purge the monastery of these rather undesirable elements, the abbot uh, set up a kind of public examination in which each of the monks had to um, give a public lecture or presentation in order to show that they were in fact diligent students and were not just wasting their time like someone like Shantideva. So each monk took his turn uh, expounded his understanding and then it came to be Shantideva's turn and this they thought would be the way in which they could finally rid themselves of this guy so he ascended the teaching platform and then he asked well would you like me to comment on uh, some classical scriptures or would you like me to teach something that's never been written down before and they said, well, please tell us something new. At which point he began to recite the uh, 900 uh, um, Sanskrit metric verses that constitute uh, this text, uh, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Somewhat to the surprise, I imagine, of the monks. <laughs> and 
as he reached the end or got close to the end of this text, um, somewhere in, I think, the ninth chapter, which is the chapter that deals with uh, prajna, with wisdom, with the understanding of emptiness, he began to levitate. He slowly rose uh, from the teaching platform and his voice became fainter and fainter and fainter as he ascended into the clouds and disappeared. Uh, At which point the monks realized that they had seriously underestimated this man (laughs) and um, immediately sent out search parties. (laughs) Eventually they tracked him down. Um, But by that time he had... um, he had renounced his monastic uh, vows. He was living as a lay person um, and preferring the anonymity of being simply someone wandering through the world, living in the world, working in the world. And he refused to return to the monastery. Um, All he did offer them was the hiding place in the rafters of one of the rooms there of a commentarial text that he'd also composed that would perhaps elucidate some of the Bodhicharya Avatara. Uh, That's known as the Shiksha Samuchaya, the collection of uh, of instructions or or, or trainings, uh, which is also translated in English uh, and uh, is a compendium, actually, of Mahayana Sutras um, under uh, certain thematic headings. But certainly his key work Uh, is this guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. You have an image, if we can see if we can tease out something of this man's life, is that he was clearly um, a a, a brilliant scholar. That's clear from these texts. He had a mastery of the um, Mahayana uh, traditions. Um, But also in this metaphor of his levitating up into the sky and disappearing, you also feel that he's someone who shunned um, being in any sense a public figure. And again, this may also be implied by his pretending, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, of, of just lying around all day not doing anything and then eventually disappearing into the world itself. This theme is actually picked up in some of the uh, in, in some later writings associated with the tantric tradition in India uh, of the Mahasiddhas, the, the, the great adepts of the Vajrayana, of which Shantideva is considered to be one, although he comes in that literature under yet another name of Busuku. And the figure of Busuku um, likewise is identified with Shantideva as having left the monastery in this rather dramatic way. He then becomes um, a guard of the king's palace and yet he holds his position not with a, um, you know, having a, a metal sword but a wooden sword as though somehow pointing to the how people can be so easily deceived by appearance, one does not really need to utilize actual violence. When he's exposed in that situation too, as some great teacher or whatever, he again slips away. He disappears back into the anonymity of a worldly life. So we have a person here who chooses to be lost, as it were, from public view in the world and yet is clearly um, embodying a very um, uh, profound and very beautiful uh, vision of what a Buddhist life could be. And as we'll see as we go through the text, I think there's internal evidence in the text itself to show that his, um, uh, his preferred lifestyle for someone following the Bodhisattva practice is, as it were, to be somewhat anonymous in the world. But let's look at the text itself. One of the things that um, makes this text so engaging, and this is very uncharacteristic of 
material of that uh, type and of that era is that it's highly personal in tone. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with, say, the writings of Asanga or Dharmakirti or Chandrakirti, who are the great um, scholars of Nalanda and of northern India at that time, but they are extremely impersonal. Uh, They're very philosophical, uh, logical, didactic, uh, analytical, and you rarely get a glimpse of the author, the real flesh and blood living person who is behind those words. It's as though the uh, author is quite literally uh, taken out of the text, has become invisible, is not of any importance in the um, course of the discourse, of the narrative, of the teaching. What's striking about Shanti Deva's text is that a very um, vivid personality comes through, which is ironic in a way, given his legend of being this aspirant after anonymity. This text really speaks to you. You feel that there's a person here who's not standing from some, he's not speaking from some aloof perspective of detached enlightenment but you feel there's a person here who's actually sharing with you, the reader, um, his own struggle. Uh, He he, he very frequently utilizes the first person, I. He makes it very personal. And that perhaps accounts for the popularity of this work, particularly amongst Tibetans. This is a text that's a favorite um, of the Dalai Lama, For example, the current Dalai Lama, he often gives teachings on it. He frequently will be citing it. And likewise, for many of us Westerners who were trained in that uh, Tibetan tradition, I feel likewise it was almost a breath of fresh air to read this stuff because it became, it somehow humanized an otherwise somewhat abstract set of doctrines and teachings. There's also a poetry, I feel, in Shantideva's verses. He has a wonderful gift for uh, metaphor, uh, for imagery, for example. And he can weave, I feel, very skillfully both Buddhist philosophical ideas and ethical ideas with um, very powerful images to capture and communicate their meaning in a non-descriptive, non-analytical fashion. The text itself um, begins with uh, a eulogy to the bodhicitta. Now, bodhicitta is a term that you don't find in the uh, early Buddhist tradition, in the Pali texts. Uh, It's one of the few terms, actually, in, in later Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism, that has no clear precursor in the Pali. Um, The bodhicitta literally means, uh, bodhi means awakening or enlightenment, and citta, mind, thought, or whatever, is the thought of enlightenment, which in itself doesn't sound terribly exciting. But the understanding of, of this term can perhaps, perhaps be captured, really, in the simple English word, love. That's not how I translate it here. In this rendition, I translate it as an awakening mind. Western translators have not really come to any consensus how to render this in English. But I feel in context, um, in usage, in some respects, it's very close to the Christian uh, uh, idea of agape, a a kind of um, disinterested but universal benevolence. Uh, a well-wishing for the whole world. When bodhicitta is defined, and the Tibetans spend a lot of time defining it, it's defined as the altruistic resolve to attain awakening for the benefit of all beings. And this, of course, constitutes the prime motive of the person who then becomes a bodhisattva, So bodhicitta is 
one might say, the soul or the spirit of awakening that animates the bodhisattva, which means the awakening being, literally, the one who aspires to awaken. Bodhisattva being, of course, the term the Buddha himself used to describe his status prior to becoming a Buddha. He says in the Pali text, when I was a bodhisattva. The Mahayanists take this idea, the bodhisattva, and rather than seeing it just as um, the, the, uh, the state of a person who's about to become a world teacher, a Buddha, they see it as a potential way in which anybody could live their life. And the bodhicitta, this aspiration, this altruistic resolve to awaken for others, is the driving force that motivates someone to take the bodhisattva vow, to actually commit themselves to that way of life, that bodhicharya, the bodhisattva's way of life. But what's interesting in Shantideva's text is his own relationship to the bodhicitta. It starts, in fact, in chapter 1 by being presented as um, some a, a quality of, of mind, and I'm going to call it love. Um, it's distinct from metta, but for the sake of convenience, I'd like to just use this word love. That love, as Shantideva understands it, um, broke into his life at one point. And he says, um, in a very famous verse, he says, just as a, a flash of lightning on a dark cloudy night for an instant brightly illuminates everything, likewise in this world, through the power of Buddha, a wholesome thought rarely and briefly appears. Now, this wholesome thought is understood in context and also in the commentaries, to be the bodhicitta. It's like a flash of lightning in the dark sky. And he, we would perhaps from a Christian culture think of it as somehow a moment of grace. Um, one might think of uh, the conversion experiences of Paul or uh, the accounts of other conversion experiences that you find in Christianity of somehow being filled with God. And the language here is very, very reminiscent of that. Uh, the, the breaking through into an ordinary life of this profound um, sense of identification, of love for others. But it's something that happens to him. Later in the text, uh, he uses another metaphor to describe this. He says, um, he says like a blind person coming across a jewel in the heap of garbage, likewise the bodhicitta has by some chance been born in me. There's something almost accidental about this, something also highly unlikely that a person, as Shantideva considers himself to be blind in a way, sort of wandering around in the muck and the murk of the world, suddenly comes across this uh, illuminating jewel of the mind, this radiant uh, love for others. And this leads him into um, uh, 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 an almost ecstatic um, praise and wonder at what has happened to him. Um, here are some of the verses that uh, he subsequently uh, uses in, in praise of this bodhicitta. And again, it captures very beautifully the spirit of where the bodhicitta is leading him. Um, this is a prayer. After the, the, this initial moment of being struck by this feeling, this emotion of love, he then proceeds um, to offer a puja, a, a prayer, um, uh, uh, to, to the Buddhas, to the Bodhisattvas. There's also a long section about um, a, a confession 
Um, again, one might find some of this language um, uh, quite reminiscent of the more uh, confessional, even rather kind of self um, uh, punitive uh, uh, language that we find in some Christian texts. Um, he considers himself basically to be a sinner and, and again marvels at how such a sinful person and again, sin is not an exclusively Christian idea. Uh, a, a papa is, is the word, a, a kind of evil, a kind of a, a dark, kind of demonic almost sense of being invaded and taken over by uh, unskillful and unwholesome thoughts. Um, so he confesses everything that he's done wrong. He tries to somehow um, purge himself of what seems to contradict these feelings of love that are growing within him um, until he gets to the point to be able to start really simply praising this quality. Um, These are some fairly well-known verses which I'll read out to give you a sense of that. He says, May I be a protector for those without one, a guide for all travellers on the way. May I be a bridge, a boat and a ship for all who wish to cross the water. May I be an island for those who seek one and a lamp for those desiring light. May I be a bed for all who wish to rest and a slave for all who want a slave. May I be a wishing jewel, a magic vase, powerful mantras and great medicine. May I become a wish-fulfilling tree and a cow of plenty for the world. Just like space and the great elements such as earth May I always support the life of all the boundless creatures. And until they pass away from pain, may I also be the source of life for all the realms of varied beings that reach unto the ends of space. Now that verse actually is often cited by the Dalai Lama as his favorite verse. And then, at that point, this feeling of love, this feeling of bodhicitta, this this overwhelming emotion that's somehow taken over in his life coalesces or crystallizes into the Bodhisattva vow itself. And so the verse, the two verses that follow are the actual taking of that vow. Just as the previous Sugatas or Buddhas gave birth to an awakening mind, the Bodhicitta, and just as they successively dwelt in the Bodhisattva practices, Likewise, for the sake of all that lives, do I give birth to an awakening mind, and likewise shall I too successfully follow the practices. And that's the point at which this feeling becomes a resolve. And at that moment, he then embarks on the actual practices that will bring that resolve to fruition then, of course, it starts getting rather difficult. And what's, I think, interesting in these first three chapters that I've very briefly covered here um, is that this is a kind of spiritual autobiography. We have the beginning in a moment of almost euphoric um, elation, uh, this perhaps even impossibly idealistic aspiration to awaken for the sake of all beings. What follows in the next few chapters is, a, is very much a coming down to earth. And in chapter 4, um, we, as it were, find a sequence of verses that really are transitional from this emotional high to the actual question of, well, now what do I do? And in fact, he says that um, in one passage, if I can find it, I probably won't. I don't want to flick through here and not find things. It takes forever. Um, At one passage, he says, I must have been crazy to have taken that vow. I must have been nuts. There's no way in which I can do this. But having made such a commitment with such sincerity, I can't renege on it. So he feels himself caught, as it were, in a conflict And perhaps we've felt that too at times. We make sometimes, um, in a moment of great inspiration, um, we commit ourselves to 
becoming enlightened or whatever it is or of, 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 of living selflessly for the rest of our lives. And then, of course, we find that that kind of resolve in itself is insufficient to um, override all the other conditionings and habits and uh, forces in our minds that are actually going in a rather different direction. So we end up with this situation of, of conflict. And I think that there's such conflict, be it in Shantideva's bodhisattva context, or be it in simply trying to be more mindful. You know, we find ourselves sitting here trying to be mindful, and of course, there's another part of ourselves, perhaps an overriding part of ourselves, that wants to do anything but be mindful. We're all over the place. It's actually quite a struggle at times um, to remain true to what we uh, value most deeply um, and we keep feeling ourselves somehow tugged away, pushed in another direction. So Shantideva suddenly becomes uh, conscious of this, of this struggle that he's going to embark upon and in this chapter 4, we find him kind of lurching back and forth, um, recognizing how difficult this is going to be and how, in a, how, how, how um, unsuited he is in terms of his own psychological self-understanding for embarking upon such a course. And yet, he knows that he can only retain his sense of integrity and his sense of value by following this impulse this resolve, which in some ways is utterly unrealistic, impractical, and perhaps even slightly romantic. Now, from this point, uh, the text then embarks on a presentation of the uh, of what, what are called in Mahayana Buddhism the six perfections. Uh, perfection is again not terribly good translation. Um, I prefer something like the sort of the, the six uh, tran- transcending practices, those which take us out of our kind of limited and confused state into one that somehow goes beyond those limitations to another mode of being, enlightenment or whatever. And the, the, the practices that he, he, he then uh, uh, explores um, are those in the first instance of, of ethics, and that covers chapters, chapter 5. Tolerance or patience, chapter 6. Uh, enthusiasm or energy or effort, chapter 7. Meditation, chapter 8. And wisdom, chapter 9. There's then a final chapter, 10, which uh, is a dedication, which is sometimes understood to be the perfection of generosity. Um, of course, we don't have time this evening to uh, to go through all of this um, in any detail whatsoever. So I'm just going to sort of sketch the trajectory that Shanti Deva follows. Um, he understands when he talks about the practice of morality, although he doesn't explicitly regard it as such. Um, but this again is only. Is, is really, I think, only clear from context. In chapter 5, uh, it's called uh, uh, guarding awareness. Guarding awareness. Awareness is uh, sampajanya in Pali, um, as opposed to sati. Sati, sampajanya. Uh, mindfulness and awareness, we might translate them. And this chapter is, has some passages in it, um, but it's in, in, in the first third of the chapter, which are some of the most um, uh, useful, I've found, uh, advices and instructions on how to cultivate mindfulness and awareness. Um, but Shantideva sets this in the context not of um, uh, uh, cultivating a certain uh, presence of mind in order to be more, more aware, in order to see things more clearly, more mindfully, but for him, mindfulness and awareness have to do with uh, sustaining a, a kind of inner moral and ethical clarity and integrity. Mindfulness is him for him in a way more a kind of recollection. And that of course is what the word satishmurti 
does in fact mean. It means to remember. Uh, we've given it in, in, in our uh, Vipassana world a sense that it's a sort of a, a, a full present attention in the present moment. Um, here it's understood more as a recollection of what it is that you have committed yourself to do, be it um, in a meditation session, be it for Shantideva here, in terms of recollecting his resolve. And by holding that resolve, holding that uh, purpose, one can then, as it were, cultivate a kind of awareness, sampajanya, in which a clarity and presence and openness of mind is sustained. Um, he sees the real um, enemy of moral um, integrity as um, those kilesas, those, those mental uh, 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 confusions and uh, afflictions that break into the stillness and clarity of mind and, as it were, corrupt our practice, our resolve, our values, and so on. And the metaphor he uses for this, Shantideva is, as I said, very good on metaphors. He compares the, the mind to, like, uh, to a house. And mindfulness he compares to the, um, uh, the guardian at the gateway of, of the senses. In other words, at the doors and the windows of the house. And as long as that mindfulness is alert, like a kind of a, a guardian or a watchman, then it's able to detect the first sign of any um, uh, threat to that house's security. And by threat here, he speaks um, of what he calls the thieves of unawareness. The thieves of unawareness. He says these bands of thieves lie in wait for the uh, uh, for a lapse in mindfulness. As soon as the mindfulness lapses, as soon as the guardian falls asleep, then he says these thieves will break into the house of the mind and steal the treasures that I've stored up there. They'll somehow, as it were, corrupt that clarity, that purity that I'm seeking to sustain. So the practice of, uh, of awareness is, 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 is contained by the mindful attention both of what one's commitments and resolves are and also of the potential forces in one's mind that could um, interrupt and, as it were, break down the awareness that's being cultivated. So he talks of guarding awareness in this way. Um, it's also interesting that uh, the metaphor he uses is the, uh, the idea of the thieves. Um, this suggests very much uh, how the kilesa um, break into our awareness. And again, when we sit in meditation, that's probably subjectively how it might feel for us too. You know, we're sitting there trying to pay attention to our breath, for example, and suddenly, whoomph, some obsessive worry takes over or some fantasy breaks in or uh, we become obsessed about uh, someone we don't like. And it's as though these things have an autonomy of their own, like thieves seeking to break into our house. And Shantideva's advice as how to deal with this is not to forcibly expel them, nor, of course, is it to uh, go, go along with them, but to remain uh, still and somewhat uh, passive in a way that he describes as being like a log. He says, um, if I can find these passages, uh, he says, says, when just as I'm about to act, I see that my mind is tainted with defilement, at such a time I should remain unmovable, like a piece of wood, and so on. Um, now, I feel that what that means, and I've always found this very valuable, is that um, we simply allow that, uh, let's say it's a, a fear or worry or something, to play itself out. We don't buy into it, nor do we 
repress it, nor do we somehow uh, try to explain it away or deny that it's going on or, 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 or not want it to happen. That's probably how we... Oh, I wish I didn't feel like this. Shantideva is saying, just be with what's happening. Be with what is there, avoiding the extremes of expression and repression. And that for him, I feel, is his middle way. And I think this is utterly applicable to um, the practice of mindfulness as it would be taught here. To be with the stuff, to accept it, to notice it, to say, yes, this this is what's going on now. Can I sustain a spacious attention and awareness in which this just becomes part of the play of my mind at this time? And as it arises, so it will pass away. It might come back again, it probably will. But again, we can allow it, as it were, to self-liberate, as they say in Dzogchen. So, if you're interested in in, in, in his ideas on the practice of mindfulness, then read uh, chapter 5 of this. He then goes into uh, the practice of patience, and I'm not going to comment on this now, it would take too long. Um, Patience, he understands uh, in brief as um, that which is the uh, the remedy or the opponent force, as the Tibetans would call it, um, of anger and hatred. So in other words, to, how do we deal with aversion, with hatred, with these kind of destructive emotions that um, have this enormous power to um, uh, to drive us into all kinds of conflictual situations to alienate ourselves from others and to, as it were, burn up, as he explains, with the fire of anger. He sees, he sees anger and hatred as particularly destructive. Uh, he, he, and he spends a great deal of time uh, looking at ways in which to deal with hatred. Again, this is a chapter that the present Dalai Lama uh, frequently teaches and often regards as one of the most useful parts of the book as a whole. This leads him then to the practice of enthusiasm, uh, which is how I've translated virya. Uh, Virya, we might... uh, I mean, he describes virya. He says, "What, what is enthusiasm? It's finding joy in what is skillful. So there's a sense of this virya, which is sometimes translated as effort, which has a joyful quality. It's finding joy in what is skillful. It's enjoying the practice, which at times, you know, doesn't always feel like that. And it's it, it's it, 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 what, what it's working against is 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 uh, laziness, um, a kind of indulgence in negativity. This he sees as a form of laziness, um, and a and and a self. A, a despising of oneself out of despondency. Uh, the psychological um, uh, insights in this chapter, chapter, I think, are considerable. It's by far the most perceptive analysis I've ever come across in Buddhist literature of what we call right effort. And he analyzes um, this virya, this enthusiasm, um, into four particular um, uh, aspects. He talks of it as as aspiration, in other words, being clear as to what it is that you aspire for in your practice, what it is that motivates you. Again, we often lose sight of that. The practice becomes a kind of routine. But to continuously reflect and remind oneself, why am I doing this? The second aspect um, is... Uh, a kind of self-confidence. In fact, the word he uses um, is, a, is the same word that we would also translate as pride. And again, that in first glance might sound odd. In fact, in some verses, Shantideva plays against this double meaning of the word pride. He, and and I, to catch that in English, it was very difficult, um, I talk of self-confidence and self-conceit. Um, but the self-confidence is it's unusual in, in a Buddhist text to see this uh, quality being given such, um, 
uh, importance. Let's see if I can find a, a verse that captures that. I probably won't. Never mind. Um, but in any case, in any case, um, he says that one should be very proud of what one's doing. That one should take great um, uh, uh, pride in these practices. That this is something one should feel very good about. A very much the opposite of a kind of negative self-image, which he talks about. He says we often um, get dragged down by a sense of our own worthlessness, our own inability. And to counteract that, he sees this Bodhisattva vow as giving one an enormous sense of self-esteem and courage. The third aspect of this um, practice of enthusiasm is to find joy. He says that the, the Bodhisattva embarks on his practice in the same way that a child goes out to play or like an elephant tormented by the midday sun plunges into a cool, refreshing lake. Very beautiful images. And then the fourth aspect, which again perhaps is surprising, is knowing when to stop, uh, what he calls rest. Knowing how to, as it were, um, uh, be, uh, you know, judge one's limits so that instead of pushing oneself and getting burnt out you know, bodhisattva burnout <laughs> he says okay now's the time to stop and actually now enjoy having a break relax it's okay you don't have to be sort of pushing yourself the whole time it, it's a very um, fascinating study it's a chapter though that's rarely um, given much attention I think it deserves far more than that. In the next chapter, chapter 8, he moves into the practice of meditation itself. Now, what he's done in, in, uh, what, what, what he's done is to set up the conditions for going into a more sustained meditation retreat. We have this cultivation of mindful awareness, this clear moral sense, the um, capacity to tolerate enemies and negative, disruptive forces in our lives, to be patient, and also to be enthusiastic about what we're doing, and then to go off into the mountains. And the first part of chapter 8, or some of the first part of chapter 8, has to do with... um, a praise of, um, of solitude, praise of living in the hills. And we get some verses here that are, uh, are very much um, a eulogy of uh, remote, mountainous, forested regions. He says, for example, When shall I come to dwell in places not clung to as mine, which are by nature wide and open, and where I may behave as I wish without attachment? When shall I come to live without fear, having just a begging bowl and a few odd things, wearing clothes not wanted by anyone, not even having to hide this body? So he goes into this retreat. And then... When he's settled in his meditation, we arrive at the actual cultivation of the bodhicitta itself. And this is certainly the key point of the text, and it's the section that starts after verse um, 90. The chapter's broken into 180 verses, 90 about renunciation, 90 about the cultivation of bodhicitta. And to cultivate this bodhicitta, he, 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 he uh, suggests that we consider the whole world, the whole of life, to be like a single organism, a single body. And you, I'm sure you've come across some of these verses before. Um, he compares, he says, look, just as the, the hand will reach out spontaneously to assuage the pain of the foot 
even though the hand itself is not in pain. Likewise, why do I not reach out to assuage the pain of the other person or the other being? For him, if we were to understand our existence as living beings, as sentient life, as akin to the cells or the parts of a single organism or body, then we would reach out spontaneously without inhibition, without hesitation to the pain of the other. In other words, it's an image of um, a kind of universal empathy. And it's one arrives at this through eroding and breaking down the protective anesthetic or carapace of self-centeredness. As, as, as one's self-centeredness begins to, to erode, to break down, we glimpse, perhaps momentarily, the fact that our being who we are arises out of a matrix of relationships that we have with others. That we cannot be I without there being you and him and her and us and them. And of course this is a precursor really to the, the Madhyamika or, or, or the, the, the philosophical um, understanding of selflessness, of emptiness. And it brings him to one of the verses that I think captures um, uh, the, 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 his essential attitude towards the relation with the other when he says, uh, okay, well, there's this verse. In the same way as the hands and so on are regarded as limbs of the body, likewise, why are embodied creatures not regarded as limbs of life? When I think in the, when I work in this way for the sake of others, I should not let conceit or feelings of being wonderful arise. It is just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. In other words, a compassion, um, engagement with others in an altruistic sense, is not a self-conscious moral act. It's simply a spontaneous response that emerges once one has broken down the protective and self-centered obsession with me and my interests. So his understanding of this is that uh, to recognize what Thich Nhat Hanh calls this interbeing, this interdependence, this interconnectivity of life is the foundation for a natural and spontaneous caring in which we do not think of ourselves as Buddhists or Christians or whatever doing good deeds. It's just what we naturally uh, and unhesitatingly do, much in the same way as, let's say, a mother with a child, or at moments in our own life, perhaps, with those we are close to, or sometimes it, on rare occasions with strangers, when we just spontaneously reach out to the suffering of the other. And this, I feel, also captures this idea of Shantideva's um, aspiration to be anonymous, it's a kind of Taoist idea almost, although certainly there was no influence here of, of Chinese thought. But the Taoist sage likewise seeks to disappear into the world and only by not being noticed does he become effective. Lao Tzu says, you know, when the sage is active in the world, people say, well, things are going really well now, that's strange. But as soon as you sort of rise your, uh, you know, raise your head above the parapet, and say, look at what a spiritual person I am, then we get into, you know, doing good as a kind of self-conscious spiritual conceit, potentially. And I have to wind up now. But we then arrive, after this chapter on the cultivation of bodhicitta, I mean, the explicit practice he offers is what he calls the exchanging of self for other. And there are a number of verses in this chapter in which he quite literally reverses I and you. He takes, he, he, he considers, um, uh, how does he do this? He considers the other to be I and him to be you. 
and tries to, as it were, relate to all others as I and himself as this um, uh, a, a person who seems to be um, unwilling to engage in such a profound self-identification. But that's a fairly complicated passage. But again, I feel it is very much of the essence of what he's teaching. The ninth chapter um, then goes on to the cultivation of wisdom, which he understands as the key liberative insight that will eventually break down the, um, uh, the barriers and the hesitations of self for good. And so there's a long uh, series of verses here, about 160 or so, in which um, he, he, he explores the meaning of shunyata, of emptiness. And this chapter is difficult. Um, it gets into a lot of 8th century Indian Buddhist um, uh, philosophical debate. And it, it, it doesn't seem to have the, uh, you know, the, the immediacy and the directness of much of the rest of the text. Some verses do. Um, they're very good. Others are really difficult to wonder. You wonder under what's going on. Suddenly, this man who we've been following so closely uh, is now getting very interested in refuting the philosophical position of the Samkhya school. It doesn't mean much to us these days. And I feel it's a, it's a shame in a way that the, 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 the text goes into this highly academic and abstract language. But towards the end of that chapter, we come back to this same rather um, inspiring and uh, at times troubling voice and we conclude in chapter 10 with a dedication of merits. In other words, a, a giving away of everything that he has shared with us, that he's cultivated in his own life, in his own practice, and, 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 and uh, giving it away to others, pouring himself out into the world in a series of, again, very beautiful uh, prayers. For example, May the blind see forms, May the deaf hear sounds, and just as it was with Maya Devi, the Buddha's mother, may pregnant women give birth without pain. May the naked find clothing, the hungry find food, may the thirsty find water and delicious drinks. May the poor find wealth, those weak with sorrow find joy. May the forlorn find new hope, constant happiness and prosperity. May all who are sick and ill quickly be freed from their illness, and may every disease in the world never occur again. And that's the, the, the note, as it were, on which this text comes to a close. Thank you.